Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper. It's Sunday, September 20th, 2020. 2020. How about them apples? Uh, 2020. Yeah, yes. Except it's and, not, it's not the it's, 20th month. Then, and it's yeah. the apple season. And it's Rosh Hashanah. So everything's Happy going for it. Everything is falling into place. And uh, to celebrate uh, the new Jewish year, we have, we have with us our youngest son, our, uh, Zeke. <laughs> Ezekiel. That's oh. that's a that's a good name for Rosh Hashanah. Ezekiel Happy Rosh Hashanah. Oh, thank you, Zeke. Lashana Toba to you. Uh, great. All right. Well, we have our normal, a very full plate, Tamsin. Very full plate. Right. Right. And uh, we start. Beautiful day. Yeah, it is a beautiful day. Chilly though, a fall day. Yes, in the forties. I'm looking for some uh, apple cider. I or find something it's like. quite warm actually. Now, you're in California, Zeke. You know, you're just feeling the, the wildfires. By the way, thanks for the wildfires. Casting a cloudiness over New York over th- on Thursday and Friday. It was hazy, hazy here because of the fires on the West Coast. Yeah, it's 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 kind of bad out here. It's uh, we're just checking the air quality. It's not great at the moment. No, not great. Mm. Well, anyway, the air is pretty darn nice here. Now here it's beautiful. And people are out, they're walking, they're biking. Oh, they're all over the place. We saw people on unicycles on the canal path. Yes. Zeke. How about that? Dangerous. Large uh, unicycles. And next next week, today was the high was 62. Next week, uh, 79 is the forecast high. So crazy. Crazy, crazy, crazy. All right, uh, Tamsin. We, you start, we're starting with a story which was too crazy to be believed. I didn't believe it, but you found it, honey. And this is mine? Yeah. Oh, Okay. Uh, yeah, New York Times uh, reports uh, that there is a great interest in flights to nowhere. Flights to nowhere, which strangely are exactly what they sound. Yes, they're like uh, cruises to nowhere, you know? No. People, yeah, people get on a cruise boat and they no, no, no. ride around for a few hours yes, but and, they, but, but then you know, you, play some gambling. But it's pleasurable. And, they're and, on outdoors and they're enjoying the air and they're well, enjoying it, the water. It, Brunei... Taiwan, Japan, Australia. People there are, get, are airlines. They're getting on an airplane, taking off and landing in the same airport. Right. On and they're doing this on purpose, voluntarily, paying money for the trip. Some of them are short rides, like eighty-five <laughs> minutes. Who would do Some that? Some of them are seven hours long. That's insane. For the pleasure of being on an airplane. Right. And they sell out in minutes. It doesn't make any sense at all. There are a few things as horrible as being in an airport and then on an airplane. This might just be a scam. It's not a scam. It's I, in the I, I New York the airport, Times. The airports are making this up. It's unbelievable to me that people would do it. This shows you anything is possible. This is as crazy a thing as we have discussed the entire tenure they, of the podcast. They say their customers, some of them love flying so much, they really miss being up in the air, seeing the clouds, you know, etc. <laughs> and they're dying for the opportunity. Now, on some of these flights, yeah. the ones from Brunei, yeah. because there hasn't been much virus in Brunei, yeah. the passengers don't even have to wear masks. Right, great. This the staff wears masks, okay? But the passengers and they have pictures in the article, they're just sitting there like it's a normal airplane. Yeah, Tamsin, Tamsin, the idea of going for the pleasure of being stuck in an aluminum tube 
uh, miles up in the air is insane. I mean, it, sometimes you have to get someplace, you have to get an airplane and fly. And I'm not even talking COVID now. It's, uh, it's something you got to deal with. It's part of modern life. But who would do it voluntarily for no purpose? And some of them are billed as dine in the air. Dine in the air. Like it's exciting to go and eat an airplane food. That that does remind us when we were in Mohonk, when you ordered the chicken, it was called the airline chicken. And you actually had a nice discussion with the waitress about the fact that airline chicken is not the most pleasurable association they might have come up with. Right. Because it sounds like airline food. But these people She says that's what that kind of chicken is called. I said, I don't care. No one wants to think they're eating airline chicken. Well, you're chicken. wrong. You're wrong. People want to do it. It may have been named back when there was better food on it, flights. It's possible, Zeke. But you, even you, Zeke, who I think is silenced by this strange occurrence, have yeah, no I mean, explanation. I have, a, I, have a, I have a you know helpful travel tip yeah. for anyone who's considering going on one of these flights to nowhere. Mm. Here's, here's uh, our travel tip of the episode, which is... If you're considering spending several hundred dollars to go up in the air and land back at the same airport, just uh, check out Microsoft Flight Simulator. It only costs $60. You don't burn jet fuel, and you can donate the rest of those hundreds of dollars to a worthy cause. Oh, well, that's, uh, uh, that's a good idea. A public service announcement. All right. Yes. Good work, Zeke. All right. But, but how's the food? <laughs> I'm just- Excellent. Exactly. What else? It's delivered. Some of these flights go to Antarctica. Listen, you want to go you on can flight fly to, around and look at you want Antarctica to go on flight to and nowhere. just go back home. Here's another and way to do up. it. Go to LaGuardia and uh, in, in the spring during uh, thunderstorm season, you get a good chance you're going to take off and land at the same airport and you get, go nowhere. Hardy, hard, There's something hard, to look forward to. So here's something that's that's just as unbelievable. It's a little more serious, and it's actually interesting, uh, which is. Uh, the Times article is titled A Whole New Fan-Free Soundscape for His Mind's Eye. It's an article about a fellow whose name is Enrique Oliu, uh, and he broad, he, he's the Spanish-language broadcaster for the Tampa Bay Rays, The Color Man. And the Times article is that uh, it, the COVID uh, experience, uh, which means no fans in the stands, has uh, affected him in a unique way. Because he's blind. And I'm reading this, I'm saying, yeah, COVID affects him differently because he's blind. Then I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Hold the phone. Did we bury the lead here? He's broadcasting baseball games and he's blind. Uh, And yes, that is burying the lead. That, in fact, is what's going on. This guy, uh, Oliu, was born blind in Nicaragua some time ago. And uh, he... uh, was uh, sent to uh, boarding school in Costa Rica because it was the only school in the area for people who were blind. And he later was sent to the Florida School for the Deaf and the Blind in St. Augustine. Again, not too many resources for this. And he got it in his head while listening to sports on the radio that he wanted to be a sports broadcaster. And his dad says to him, "Uh, how are you going to do that? I mean, I don't want to hear about you want to do it. Show me how you're going to do it. And he did. I mean, there's almost no explanation, but he he got a job doing color uh, for minor league games and senior professional games, again, uh, Spanish language. Uh, And I should emphasize that when you're the color man, you're not doing the play-by-play. So he's not watching and saying there's a ground ball, a shortstop, and throw it first. That's the responsibility of the play-by-play announcer. He is filling in the gaps in between plays, 
uh, by making observations about how the players are faring, uh, remembering anecdotes about similar players, uh, past games, talking about the game's history, uh, chatting it up with a play-by-play guy. And he's able to do all that, notwithstanding that he's blind, which is pretty amazing to me. And he's successful? Yeah. He's done, he's done it 21 years. 21 years. Yeah. Well, that's impressive. Yeah. What do you think of that, Zeke? Good for him. <laughs> it just Well, look, there's a lot he can do. Uh, by saying, oh, yeah, you know, it's, uh, this guy's hitting 300. Uh, the last guy to hit 300 for the Tampa Bay. By the way, Tampa Bay is a very good team. So this is a serious broadcasting uh, pedestal. Uh, you know, last guy to hit 300 was uh, so-and-so. And, uh, you know, they've only had uh, two catchers in the last 20 years. This, you know, there's a lot to fill in in terms of knowledge of the game. But a color man also says things like, gee, I thought he got a bad jump on the ball. Gee, I, you know, I, I, I thought the runner was safe. I think the umpire got it wrong. There's a lot of stuff the color man does that's based, you would think, on sight that's not available to a Leo, but um, he manages. And, it's, and apparently uh, his, uh, his broadcast partner, the play-by-play guy, refers to a Leo as mi querido volcan, which, as you all know, means my dear volcano, because he erupts at certain points. He gets so carried away with the game. So uh, there you go. So you're going to listen to him? No, it's in Spanish language. I'm not going to get too much out of it. I mean, I'll get a little bit, but uh, uh, I'm just stunned. I mean, but can you imagine? Here's why I talked about being a kid. Saying to his father, this is what I want to do. His father's jaw must have hit the ground. Say, really? That's your plan? And uh, Does, I wonder what did happen, whether he was he, he made totally friends skeptical in the or helped he, him out or what? He was totally skeptical. He says, you all have to show me how you're going to do it. Uh, his father said to him, no one is going to care if you're blind or not, so you better have a lot of resolve if you think this is what you're going to pursue. Right. He did. Okay. All right. There you go. Zeke, there was something about crowdfunding and comic books, which we thought might be up your alley. Sure. Yeah. So there's an article in the Times about comic book production getting crowdfunded. This is, uh, for those of you unfamiliar, crowdfunding is when you raise money online by appealing directly to the folks who want to see a particular product or project get completed. In this case, we're talking about creators saying, hey, I really want to make this comic book. I really want to print it. I really want to get it out there, but I don't have the support of a big company. I can't just get, you know, whatever thousands of copies made uh, just because I want to. So I need you, the fans, to come in and fund this effort. Appealing directly to the crowd. Now, this has been going on for years with comic books. What this uh, article points out is that crowdfunding has actually become so popular in the field of comic books that it's not just small indie efforts anymore. At this point, there is some precedent for... uh, for bigger companies, bigger names getting involved. And there's concern now among people who are into this scene that the kind of indie style of that uh, is, is being undermined, that the opportunities for smaller time creators are being pulled away by these uh, big established names. Uh, they give examples like Todd McFarlane, who is uh, you know celebrating the like anniversary of his popular project spawn by uh, doing some kind of crowdfunding effort and pulling in i think several million dollars toward it uh, as well as another comic book that was being written in part by keanu reeves 
And uh, these are not exactly small names. This is not the sort of like, you know, indie, undiscovered gems, uh, diamonds in the rough that we uh, more often associate with crowdfunding. So, the, so, well, so what's the idea? That, controversy there. That, that uh, the big boys are sucking up all the money? And... Well, that's the concern, I think. Yeah, for sure. There's there's this risk, there's perceived risk that, you know, all the money that would be spent on these platforms is going to get pulled towards these bigger, more recognizable names. And then crowdfunding platforms uh, like Kickstarter will just be another place for the incumbents to dominate. Uh, I've used Kickstarter before, not for comic books, for uh, board game projects. Uh, but I can say it, it is, it's an interesting space for those reasons. It, it can be really exciting to appeal directly to the people who would want your project and to get some recognition from them and get even the the small amount of promotion that comes with just having a project on a site like that. So it can be really empowering to small creators. Right. But it wouldn't be the first time that a platform had eventually been taken over by the big names and the big companies. So in that sense, it seems like the risk is real. The, the other thing it affords uh, the creators uh, more... Um what would you say, uh, freedom, uh, you know, they're not controlled by a larger company or well, they're an taking editorial less, board yeah, or et cetera and so forth. Um, so it's it's a more flexible, you know. You mean even for the established creators? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I can it, see why it might have an attraction for right. others. But, I, I mean, it just seems kind of crazy that you could you would even want to limit it to any group in particular. Well, no, what do you mean limited to any group? Well, I, I mean, just... Uh... Well, I mean, the, the concern here is that they're, they're taking up the space. They're taking right. the oxygen in the room. So, so what would be the answer? Uh, not allow there is no answer. any there's established There's nothing uh, you could do about people it. People on? You just sort of give... Yeah, them. in the article, they quote someone from one of these crowdfunding sites who, who you know, is certainly not... Uh, opposed to getting the business that comes with Keanu Reeves being involved. And he basically says like, oh, people used to think of this as being just for small indie operations, right. but now we realize it's for everyone. And he doesn't want to acknowledge that there's a, a big conflict there. Yeah. And like, I, you know, the, the conflict is not necessarily so apocalyptic. I'm sure that, you know, a lot of the folks who go on these crowdfunding sites are going to be savvy about who they're supporting and how. Um, but it's interesting, too, because this is a time when there are some big like seismic shifts happening in just the comic book business. Uh, I haven't followed every detail of this saga, but not long ago, uh, Diamond, the company that did really all the distribution for both Marvel and DC, I think uh, like it, it ceased operation at one point. I think it like uh, ended its contract with DC, something like that. Again, you have to go somewhere else for the details. But that's a really big deal considering it used to be that this one company distributed all the comic books and it was very set in stone. You know, there are these two big comic book companies right. and then the one big company that, that sends out their books. So for that, that norm that lasted for decades to be overturned, I think in part due to the pandemic, is a big deal. It makes you wonder where the business is going. Perhaps it could go in the direction of indies being more powerful, right. or it could perhaps be that the the big players uh, have such a chaotic time competing with each other or making their businesses work that they feel that they have to go into crowdfunding spaces. Yeah, look, I, don't know, I, I think there's a fundamental, fundamental issue with Kickstarter too, which is that I don't think it was initially thought of as a way to sell things. It's much the way to fund things. And, and that's what these folks are doing. They're really using it as a way to sell something. 
uh, as opposed to saying we need help getting the money together to do the production of these books. But that's that's built into the DNA in terms of issues with respect to Kickstarter, I think. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, there's always some some like I think it's never exactly super clear whether it's just about like funding something that couldn't be funded otherwise or uh, just selling something. Yeah. Um, because you could argue that that's just kind of moving things around in the process of making it. Like it's helpful to a really small creator to get the money up front. It makes it easier to do things, but it's still not inconceivable they could get that project made. Mm-hmm. And also for bigger companies, a lot of times, even if they could theoretically get the money, getting it up front means they can validate the interest. Yeah. So it may be more realistic to actually get the money up front for the thing to really get made. All right. Well, look, that's me. The, the exciting thing about Kickstarter is is and I think Tamsin feels the same way, is they get uh, unknown people a platform. And uh, so you'd like to see that preserved for them. But uh, there's no keeping the other folks out. It's an open platform. Okay. Yeah. All right, honey. What do you got here? New York Times says there's a pandemic sale at the Brooklyn Museum. Well, the idea of sale at a museum is a little bit off-putting. I mean, how, <laughs> well, deals, no, deals, I mean, deals. Yeah, well, Deep discounts on your favorite no, works mean, of art. I think what's going on, Zeke, is people are buying the exhibits. Am I wrong about no, that? No, they're not buying Yes, they the, are. No, this not, is not in the gift shop. No, no. no Every no, exhibit whoa, whoa, has a price whoa, whoa, tag whoa, next whoa, to it now. Whoa, whoa. This is a if the price tag is orange, it's on sale. <laughs> That's right. This this is a staying in business sale. That's, We've yeah. seen those signs up. We've seen right. the going out of business yeah. sales. Now, you know, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn Museum always looks like it's going out of business. All right. Okay. Yeah. It struggles. It's more than a mile away from Museum Mile. Right. And uh, it, it has a hard time attracting the sufficient crowds to uh, maintain. Yes, but, but they're selling it's the artwork. It's a big museum. They're selling the artwork. It's a big, big <laughs> museum. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Actually, not my favorite. They really have made a mess of it, yeah. if you ask me. They, at a certain point, they rerouted you, so you come in through the basement. Right. And it's like, we're not good enough to go through the go up the big stairs? No, you come through the basement. What is it? Yeah. Anyway, it, ha- it has had struggles staying in business. Now... What's going on this time that's different is they are selling works of art from the collection in order to finance the care of the collection. Yeah. Okay. So they need to pay people to, you know, clean, care for, etc. They're selling the paintings. They have sold paintings before. They sold a Francis Bacon painting for six million bucks uh, a year ago to buy other works. Okay, but it is a no-no to sell things in the collection just to pay the bills. I'm not seeing the distinction. It's a huge distinction. Yeah, how so? Okay, because then you then you're just using the you know. The collection is kind of a checking account. But I think they you are. You know, you're just, uh, oh, yeah. Well, we, you know, here's a big bill well, from... So your uh, point is they're selling it because they're at a, at a critical stage and they have to sell Well, there are all these, many museums are at a critical stage at the moment because they've been closed. Yeah. They have no way to get any revenue, but they still have plenty of employees and plenty of expenses. Uh, look, I'm okay? not... All right? I'm just so calling how what do it you is. Pay that? Even though they're opening back up, 
It's at greatly reduced capacities, right. just like the restaurants, so, etc. So the Museum Association, okay, has said the Association of Art Museum Directors has dictated that this is allowable okay. for the next two years. Right. Museums may sh- sell, may deaccession items so they can pay the bills this should not be a regular practice they caution but they they also have some particular uh, rules about it right that they say things like they're not selling anything really that's on display they try to say that a lot of these items have not been on display for a long time uh, and they don't really see you know a, a viable way to like basically present them anytime in the near future they also like uh, have a a rule against selling stuff that is a from a living artist. They think that's a line they shouldn't cross. Right, um, right. They so say, they're well, trying they say to be smart about it. They're selling items that are good examples of their kind, but don't diminish our collections in their absence. Okay, so yeah. but they are selling some cool stuff, like uh, painting of Lucretia. You know, Lucretia. She kills herself uh, just, rather than just this nod seek. <laughs> the old Roman story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tarquin the Proud. Oh, of course, okay? of course. You know, the end of the kings yes, in Rome. Yes. No more kings. Absolutely. Know, by Lucas Cranach. It's all your Cranach. Come on. She's adorable. I'm looking at um, the picture, yeah. And she's adorable and she could be yours for a very reasonable price. <laughs> the funny thing about... She's going to go for big bucks. They say 1.8 million. And look, these things will sell because they have a great provenance yeah. right a museum yeah. has vetted them and owned them. it's only one problem so as opposed to buying something off the street from our friendly art thieves yeah. you know you know you're getting yeah. the real deal Can i tell you the okay? problem there may be other little museums that need to bump up their the chronic section the, of their the museum. challenge as a sales as for the seller the museum is they're saying on the one hand we're selling this stuff it's nice it's good it's not great and that's a tough way to sell something because you're saying to the buyer, on the one hand, that's not such fantastic no, stuff. No, 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 no. But on the other hand, no, you might want no, to buy no, it. No. no, people can decide whether on their own whether they think it's great whether or Whether they want a chronic. Right, yeah. right. Uh, and these things are pretty great. But the thing is, maybe right. you have three other chronics. Is there anything that we you know, should be buying? Are we putting in a bid? I would go for the chronic. The chronic? That's 1.8 million? I would take it in a That's all, How big is it? Would it fit in the kitchen? But not everybody thinks this is a good idea. Oh, Okay, so there is some, uh, you know, controversy mm. about that. Yeah. Uh, but I also like the idea that um, some people point out that, you know, um, the trustees should be managing the museum better so that these problems don't come up. Well, but okay? they're, they're doing you know the what best that means, Zeke? That means the trustees should be chipping in. To pay yeah. these bills. I'm sure the trustees are That's shipping in. That's why they're on the board. I'm sure. Yeah, they had a quote from know. one critic that basically amounted to saying, like, this is a bad precedent. Now in the future, the trustees who don't want to chip in can just say, oh, why should I give money? You can just sell stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, why, why should I donate to what I believe is an art store? <laughs> and uh, you don't really want that perception of, you know, but that also, being what the museum is. It's not sexy to pay the bills. Okay, it's sexy to contribute money for a new wing or to purchase, you know, a new chrono. Well, that's all right. Um, It's uh, but for the day to day, you know, listen, all all kidding aside, I think it's fine. I think it's fine. Of course you think it's fine. It's it's, it's, it's free Um, enterprise. But here's the thing. 
these museums have way too much stuff anyway. You know, they should get more. But on the other, yeah, you know, and you're right. A lot of it's not even on view. What's the point? You know, how how does she get more money? Crowdfunding. I think crowdfunding might be the answer for some of these museums. That's what a museum is. It is basically crowdfunding. Yeah. Okay. Okay. This is what happens when your crowdfunding efforts fall short. Well, you have to sell the family jewels. I, I guess so. Uh, all right, so you had something related to that, though, did you not? I, I think you're playing. Oh, was... I'm, I'm doing like a million things. Yeah, we're all relying on row. you, honey. It's all okay. you. Carnegie uh, Hall. Yeah, another one of those virtual tours mm. with Michael mm. Kimmelman mm-hmm. in the New York Times. Yes. This time he's, uh, he's around uh, Carnegie Hall and nearby Gems. That's like 57th means... and 5th, right? Yeah, so yeah. walking down 57, I love walking across 57. You know, I used to get off the subway way over on the west side, maybe over like Columbus Circle, mm-hmm. and then walk across to meet you at Rue 57, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. And uh, that's the restaurant yes, on the corner I, of 6th I, and I do know it, yes. I used to love looking at they got some crazy buildings yeah. on that but, street. But you still have to go a further block east to get to Carnegie Hall. So is he on no, the no, east no, side? No, 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 no. You get to Carnegie Hall before you get to um, Rue 57. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're right. You're right. right. Yeah, I am right. I did it a million times. Okay. Well, anyway. Okay. So, anyway, this is a tour with a couple of architects, Todd Williams and Billy Sin, Mm -hmm. and um, talking about all these architectural gems Mm -hmm. uh, along the street, which are really, really fun. And, of course, Carnegie Hall is pretty fun. You know, it's not that it looks so fantabulous from the outside, but, you know, it was never meant to really do that. It was more about uh, the inside, I okay. think. But the fun part of this article is talking with these two people, Todd and Billy, and they lived in Carnegie Hall for 30 oh, but years. But we know that because the guy from uh, Green Whatever was uh, living in Carnegie Green Hall. Book, Don Green Shirley, the Yeah, pianist. lived in Carnegie okay. Hall. He had an apartment. Did you in see Carnegie. Green Book, see? Nope. No, okay. Well, you're no help. But he was a, a musician and he lived in Carnegie Hall? Enrico Caruso, Martha Graham, really? Marilyn Monroe, Marlon Brando. Lived in Carnegie Hall? Yes, a, a wide variety of artists wow. had uh, homes in there. And uh, so um, Williamson Sien said, said it was pretty much in disrepair when they were there, okay? Mm-hmm. That they could see through some of the floors. And in fact, Todd Williams says he could walk down the hall and go through a door and look through the ceiling and see the main stage really? of Carnegie Hall and see people performing. Really? Okay. Thank God he didn't drop through. Right. right. Um, so eventually this was all, uh, you know, it was all reven- renovated and uh, this is all gone. Uh, but uh, so I think that's the most uh, fun about uh, the article. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, this great buildings uh, Allen Court uh, the Gainsborough Studios all along there uh, be fun to go back and look at those buildings sometime soon so speaking of nostalgia and uh, working your way to Carnegie Hall uh, there's another article um, in the New York Times I guess about a week ago, you, you yeah, look so like you've been saving this. Week. Lord and Taylor, I saved it. There have been a lot okay. of letters about it, too. Lord and Taylor closed. Yeah, goodbye to the way we used to shop. Right. And it's written by Sarah Seltzer, an editor at Lilith Magazine. Lilith okay. Magazine is Jewish women's is it? magazine. Yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, anyway, 
I really enjoyed this article mm-hmm. because I have shopped at Lord and Taylor, right. and uh, she is she she seems to be a great deal younger than I am. But um, she had some similar memories about this was the kind of store that you would go to. She said it was perfect for us, less trendy than Bloomingdale's, less snooty than Saks, and smaller than Macy's. Okay, and you would go there you know, to buy something special, mm-hmm. dress for a party or whatnot. It was usually a field trip with your mother or your grandmother, and my mother and I would go there, and we would have a nice little ladies' lunch at the birdcage, birdcage you know, in-house restaurant. Right. And it just seemed so ladylike. Really? And fun. And I don't know. It, it was, well, that's... That that story about you and your mother is very much in the same wavelength of, of the little anecdotes in that article. Exactly the it's same. It's mother and okay. daughter stuff. And yet we're probably decades and decades apart. She also mentions the ladies' lounges. Yeah. That's the restroom, Zeke. Okay. <laughs> Back in the day, they were lounges. And they actually had, not just in department stores, but other places as well, couches. Yeah. They were called fainting couches. Okay, I don't know. And you would walk into a ladies' room. I so clearly remember walking into a ladies' room in Lord and Taylor, like within the last 20 years, and there would be still women clustered about. They're talking, they're fixing their hair. They're, you know, it's not like you go in, do your business, and get out of today's restrooms. Okay, yeah. it was kind of a gathering place. So hard to imagine in these times the restroom as a gathering well, place I will, but that was that definitely existed and look how we shop now it's zoom 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 well, well or it's on the internet or, <laughs> yeah, but, on the internet right. yeah that you can you do all this thing all this in a nanosecond there's nothing nice about it it's not an event there's nothing community uh, oriented about it uh, so uh, it well, just i guess not that I bemoan. I love the ease of today's shopping, right. and you, nobody can be snooty anymore right. about shopping because who knows who's buying what? It's much more inclusive, right. uh, etc. But I did but enjoy. I enjoyed time. relating to this woman writing this article and uh, shopping with well, her. Well, the reason mom. I went back and got that article because the Times was flooded with letters in response to that article with stories very similar to those in the article, the one you told about you and your mother, about people talking about going with their mother, with their grandmother, with their granddaughter, to Lord and Taylor. The same kind of stories, yeah. uh, again and again and again. So, yeah, so, it, you know, it's a loss. We're not going to sit here and bemoan it and say the world shouldn't change. The world changes, but it's a loss, right? Yeah. All right, so, the Tour de France. Speaking of mothers, there is no sporting event that your mother <laughs> is more focused on than their Tour de France at the age of 92. 95. No, no. She first got interested. 92. At the uh, age of 92, she decided what has been missing in her life for the first 90 years. And it turns out it's a bicycle race in France. And she has been glued to the Tour de France every year. Was a little thrown off by the delay to the Tour de France this year. Matter of fact, Tour de France was different this year because there were no spectators, much fewer in the way of commentators, much less crowd, just the people on the bicycles, and they started late, but they always knew they were going to do it. Well, it turns out to be, it's a fascinating tour to France. Um, What happened was, last year you'll recall that Egon Bernal, uh, a Colombian, 
on the Tour de France. All right. And that was the first time that had ever happened. Well, this time, Egon Bernal was with a cluster of three or four other Colombians, but they were not in the lead. They were in the second group. First and second in the Tour de France this year, for reasons which I cannot explain, happened to be two riders from Slovenia, another country which had never spawned a winner of the Tour de France. A fellow by the name of Tadej Pogacar was second, and Primoz Roglic was first. Matter of fact, Roglic had led the race for almost the last two weeks, almost the entire race, and they came down to the last competitive bit just yesterday because the, the final day is just ceremonial. And uh, Roglic, who's 30, uh, led uh, Pogacar uh, by 57 seconds, which is a heck of a lot. But that last uh, bit, uh, that last stage that was written yesterday, was one that people talked about uh, quite a bit because it had both a time trial, which is flat, many miles, you go as fast as you can, and then it had a huge slope up, a 20% slope up, which whoa, is, they say, whoa, the equivalent of a bicycle of going up a, a wall. So it is so difficult and so strange a departure that each of the riders changed bicycles in the middle of the stage because right. you couldn't okay. use the same bicycle to go up okay. as they went straight. Makes sense. Uh, and uh, cutting right through it, notwithstanding the 57-second uh, deficit, uh, Pokecor rode so fast that he, he managed to emerge as the leader by another 59 seconds. In other words, he made up two minutes on Roglic in a race in which it thought, people thought it was over. But Pogacor, the 21-year-old, is going to win uh, the race. And, of course, they're friends and, and whatnot, So and they've competed before, and they've been competing for the Slovenia's National uh, Time Trial Championship previously. They split those kind of things, but it's going to be Pogacor who's going to win. As it happened, um, I had... Uh, I, look, I read a cycling magazine, a UK cycling magazine, and cycling is not only popular with your mother, but with the rest of the world outside of the United States. This is an English cycling magazine. And here is a fellow named Ned Bolting, who's been covering the Tour de France on television for years, was barred this year because of the pandemic, and he's writing about it before the race. And, you know, it says, why should people care about something like the Tour de France? Bolting says, you'll care about the weather, the cobbles, the climbs, the teams, the wind, the churches, the fields, the sunflowers, the punctures, the crashes, the finish lines and feed zones in ways that you would have found unimaginable. You will care about the countries the races traverse, the landscapes they cut through, the seasons they fill, feel, excuse me, that they fill. Uh, in the space of a few short days when I first covered the Tour de France, I have been exposed to such an intense dose of bravery, absurdity, and drama that I already knew that would never be the same person again. So there you go. That's Tour de France. <laughs> Your mother's on top of it. We had, well, she did, did mention Did that, she mention it this, during well, the call this morning? Just to tell me that uh, the fellow who won yesterday, his birthday is today. Oh, there you go. He's 22 years old. So, okay, enough of the Tour de France. Move on, Tamsin. I know you had something about a Soho loft. We've yeah. much, much debated discussion about this. A Soho settler moves to Queens, says the New York Times real estate section. And it's a story about Linda Sampson, who bought her Soho loft for $15,000 in 1972 and sold it this year for $2.1 million. All right. So good work, Linda. I'm sorry, what year did she buy it? 
72. Okay, you keep talking. So I'm going to figure out whether... you do the math, I know. If she could have put the 15000 in the bank. She would have made out well, much Well, if it better. doubles every seven years, you gotta, I'll do All it. Right, you that, keep talking. That's for you to do. Yeah. But anyway, it's a, it's, an, it's a kind of a bittersweet story. It's the story of her. She was an artist. She hung out with all the cool guys in Soho when it was a thriving, dynamic, scary kind of place to be. And I guess it was about 1971 that uh, some uh, law or whatever was passed allowing artists to live and work in formerly industrial buildings, you know, giving them uh, CFOs uh, to do that. So artists were buying these uh, crazy spaces and renovating or not renovating and living in them. And she was amongst them. She was a, um, a textile artist. And there's a fabulous picture of her as a young woman in uh, some appliqued jeans that she made to sell for $200 in 1971. There's also a lot of pictures of her apartment. And it, in her old age, she was somewhat of a collector slash hoarder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, the pictures are uh, not inviting. But here's the thing. She, you know, she needed the money. Okay. She needed the money. She contacted uh, a realtor. Um, Sidney Bloomstein from uh, Corcoran. It's a big uh, uh, real realtor, mm-hmm. real estate company in New York. Right. About two years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, but she wasn't quite ready to sell. She wasn't quite ready to sell. Mm-hmm. But uh, a year and a half goes by. Now, you know, on you know, to avoid foreclosure, she needs to sell in a hurry. They post photographs. They said. Frank photographs of her loft, which is rather a hodgepodge. Um, And uh, along with it, they posted computer altered photographs of what this space would look like empty. Mm -hmm. You know, same space, you know, fairly believable. They have an open house. About 450 people show up. They're asking 1.99 million Mm-hmm. Okay. By the end of the open house, they have 14 offers in cash. Mm-hmm. And uh, the winning offer was a couple from Long Island who paid two, $2.4 million for mm-hmm. it. Okay. okay. She moved to Queens. She's renting a house that she can still keep all her stuff and uh, in one space rather than downsize. But as I said, it's kind of poignant looking at sort of the before and after of her life uh, as measured in this loft. Well, just to, to go back to your point about uh, investing money. Yeah. Okay. If you had, I'm, I'm using round figures because I'm doing this all in my head. If you had $20,000 50 years ago. Okay. All right. And you put it into a CD or something, which got you uh, 10%. Again, I'm just using figures I can deal with. I know it's aggressive. Your money would double every seven years. Okay. If your money doubles every seven years. Yeah. After 49 years. Yeah. You have $2.4 million. So she did fine. No, no, no. She, she, she did better. Well, I don't know if she did better or not. And frankly, I'm she only cheating. had 
First of all, she only had she paid fifteen. Okay, for no, it. no, I, I'm sure she did fine. She did fine for a couple of reasons. First of all, my numbers were a little aggressive. Yes, because ten percent is this pretty darn good. right. Secondly, there might be tax consequences on CDs that she didn't have because it was all in real estate. Yeah, right. Uh, so and 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 as you say, she had less than twenty, and she ends up with uh, well, she didn't get two point four. But in any event, she did well. That's not my point. But my well, point. Well, she got oh, to have a great life in the law, and she got to live in the law. That's the main thing. Yeah. That is the main thing. Okay, but but when people hear those numbers to begin with, they say, "Oh my God, she just got a twenty a two million dollar windfall." Not the case. The opportunity cost the money. She got is pretty exactly close. what she should get. Yeah, pretty close. Yeah. Okay. Not the burst. I would not trouble. say that. I'd say she got a tremendous windfall, even with those numbers in mind. Not only because your numbers are aggressive, yeah, but also uh, because like that's a huge gain of money. I mean, I my financial plan at the moment is not to go buy a fifteen thousand dollar house. If you're aware of one, perhaps I don't know in the middle of Manhattan, yeah. that would be cool. But I'm afraid that doesn't exist. Yeah, well, so, but see, you could still. As far buy... as I can tell, she got a tremendous financial opportunity, <laughs> but, but, the likes of which has not existed in decades. Now, not everybody's going to buy a rough and ready place uh, for but, fifteen thousand dollars. But also, yeah. But there's a lot of things you could buy in today's dollars, and if you hold on to it for fifty years, you'd be surprised. What it might sell for? Yeah, look, my, when my parents bought the house we lived in Long Island, Zeke, uh, they paid under $20,000 for it. They paid $18,000 for it in 1954. And I'm sure it was a heck of a stretch for them to get together the down payment to buy a house for $18,000. I mean, the figures are different, but the challenge is similar. And uh, it, so homeownership pays off on the one hand, Let, but... Let's just... Be clear. Yeah, your parents didn't get two point four million. No, for they their didn't. House. They didn't yeah. get. They, they made didn't. slightly less. No, but they a lot less. They made less than if you had just put it in and used the formula I just used. But they did extremely well. You look at the figure they sold it for, and you, Zeke, from your perspective, would say, "I don't have the money to buy a house for the amount that my parents just sold the place in Long Island." Mm-hmm. But you know the numbers are different. It's all relative. Uh, the point is that uh, if you have a compound interest. And that's what we're talking about. Interest on interest on interest. That's how uh, you get uh, uh, a I believe a nest Albert egg. Einstein right. said that compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe. Well, there you that's go. I mean, that's all I'm talking about. That's what I'm drawing on, the most powerful force in the universe. So, Meanwhile, as we're, as we're winding down here, we are thinking about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Passing away. Well, uh, Fellow uh, alum of Columbia Law yeah, School. Yeah, but Ruth Bader Ginsburg's yes. history well, you know of Columbia is She was a great uh, opera fan. Did you realize well, listen, that? I have nothing against Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm not, uh, you know. I'm trying to give you a segue, dear. What? To, to opera. Oh. She was an opera <laughs> fan. Now, yeah, all right. So I do have a final thing about uh, uh, opera. You're right. About <laughs> selling opera tickets. See, did you ever scalp tickets? Uh, you ever uh, this is being recorded. Let's say no. Let's okay. say I've never scalped. Have you ever bought a scalp ticket? <laughs> I don't think so. Maybe right. I, don't, I don't think. You so. ever reach in your pocket for anything with your own money? Let's, let's start with that. All right, come on, come on, move along. Move <laughs> sure. Along. All right. So here's something from the New York Times. The Metropolitan Diary has a lot of little stories. Most of them, you know, are supposed to be cute stories, and they're kind of just blah or meh. But uh, I thought this was funny. It says it was 1967, and Mozart's "The Magic Flute" was being performed. At the Met. I wanted to see it, but I didn't have a ticket outside the hall. I found a person selling a single ticket. 
I negotiated the price and went inside. The woman sitting next to me was friendly. We started to make small talk. I told her proudly of my very successful negotiation. That was me, she said. So there you go. I mean, the point <laughs> point is he's sitting there bragging to the person he's sitting next to about how shrewd he was in terms of negotiating the price. And that's the person that he negotiated Yeah, with. if you have to explain the joke. Well, I, I, I'm disappointed that you two didn't pick up on it quicker. I think it only enhances the joke. You know, you're getting the footnotes on it. Sabotage that. Behind the scenes, director's commentary. I, I love it. <laughs> I, can see I see. wish he would explain more jokes. <laughs> I can see Zeke on the screen laughing hysterically, but he was muffling the sound because he didn't want to give me the satisfaction. That's you know, I'm sure that's part of it, too. It's what, you know, with these fancy microphones, sometimes if you laugh so hard, hard it will actually cut out so let's just assume <laughs> that i was rolling in the aisle yeah okay good well thank Convulsed you Zeke. i appreciate that that acknowledging that i was drawing on the greatest power in the universe in terms of compound interest you've made a valuable contribution all right so that's all we have this week which yeah. is plenty yeah and uh next week as we roll toward uh, yom kipper uh, we'll be on again. <laughs> we'll be thinking about what we won't be eating, but tonight we dine. <laughs> tonight we dine. Okay. Right. Uh, so this is Tamsin Granger. And uh, Dan Abuhoff and Zeke Abuhoff. There you go. With Tamsin and Dan, read the paper. We'll see you again next week. Lashana Tova. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye.